we're, like I said, we are glad that you are here with us this morning, whether you're here with us live, whether you're joining us online. Uh, and I, in particular, as the youth pastor, am thankful that we have the opportunity to celebrate these students uh, this morning as a congregation uh, for the time and effort that they have put in these past two years. Just to highlight for you a little bit more exactly of what these students have been journeying through, uh, in the Covenant Book of Worship, which kind of articulates some of the, the why behind some of the things that we do, uh, it lays out some of the different services that we do, um, but it articulates the importance of confirmation and the program and the opportunity to celebrate together. Um, and we really seek to, to lean into part of this definition that says uh, that a major focus during the middle school and adolescent years is learning to think for one self and develop one's own identity, which I'm sure some of us parents are like, I wish they wouldn't think quite so much for themselves, but it's true. That's what they do uh, at this age. And the opportunity to engage in a systematic exploration of God and his word during this time of transition from childhood to adolescence is significant. So as seventh graders, they made uh, this commitment to this exploration meeting on Sunday mornings uh, with their peers, with our teaching team, uh, but also beyond Sunday mornings, committing to some spiritual disciplines outside of their class time, some uh, committing to some things like sermon notes, some servant, serving, the serving opportunity. I can't say serving and sermon. Tongue twister. Uh, Sermon notes, serving opportunities. Uh, They have a a journal, which was to help develop a a sense of of daily devotions, diving into God's word and unpacking uh, a little bit about what that means for us in our daily lives, uh, and scripture memorization. Um, And they did this uh, during a time that I think we've all found particularly challenging in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, They've spent more time in like pandemic and like Zoom journey classes uh, than almost we have in live classes. But they've made it. And now here at the end, uh, it might not seem uh, quite so bad looking back at it. But in the moment, I'm sure there were were moments where they had a sense of just wanting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. How how much further is the end of eighth grade year when I can be confirmed? And with the, the added confirmation, commitments, I'm sure that the light of the end of, at the end of the tunnel uh, in regards to the pandemic is something that we can all be excited to see. Uh, and that's uh, a miracle that we're going to be looking at today. Not, not figurative sight, but literal sight. Now, if you're on social media a few years ago, there was a viral trend that was going around. Uh, perhaps you see it. It was a video that featured a particular pair of glasses. I mean, really, the feature of the video was the people. The glasses were more the catalyst uh, that made the video special. These videos were reactions to people who were colorblind whose friends or family usually chipped in to get them a pair of glasses that would correct their colorblindness. And these videos would be their reaction to being able to see and fully appreciate the the full spectrum of the color uh, spectrum. To go from, you know, if you have red-green colorblindness, it kind of looks the same. You can't differentiate. Everything looks gray at Christmas. They put on these glasses and it's like, that's what red looks like. That's what green looks like. And it would usually bring Uh, the wearers to tears. And I remember seeing those and thinking like, man, that would be so crazy to experience being able to see what you weren't able to see before uh, for the first time and to really truly appreciate uh, the full color spectrum. Some people even uh, call them miracle glasses. Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, that's exactly what we're talking about. Not glasses, but miracles. We've been working through the miracles that are included in the Gospel of John that John writes about. Uh, In the weeks past, we've set up a framework for how we should think about and approach 
looking at these. In terms of these miraculous signs that John includes in his account, they are historical events that are real acts of God intervening in the course of natural laws that are meant to authenticate a message and a messenger uh, from God. This isn't fiction. It's not a magic trick or an illusion that we just haven't figured out how Jesus done it. It's not a sleight of hand, um, and they have purpose. Now, the signs that John includes are hand-picked in his gospel to point to who Jesus is, and we know this because that's exactly what John tells us uh, at the end of his book. Spoiler alert, right? Uh, it says uh, in John chapter 20 that the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Now, this basic story of Jesus healing a blind person, it's not an uncommon story. It's probably one that we're familiar with, uh, at least in the concept, right? Jesus heals a blind person? Like, okay, we know that one. Uh, it's one of those classic Jesus stories that if we've grown up in church, uh, in Faith Kids, in VBS, at camp, uh, we've probably heard this one, right? At camp, there's even the song called Blind Man. A blind man stood by the road and he cried. There we go. You got a couple of camp fans in here uh, that goes through and kind of rearticulates this, right? You could say it's a feel-good story. He couldn't see before. Now he can see uh, what Amer you know, it's like the videos of the, the colorblind people seeing color for the first time. Uh, if you think about it ourselves, when we, when we damage our senses uh, and some, you take a sip of that coffee and it's too hot and now all of a sudden you can't taste it. Or maybe uh, you ended up with COVID and developed those symptoms where you couldn't smell or taste anything and everything was like blah and you're like, I can't wait until I can taste the barbecue sauce on those baby back ribs and it's not just like mush sort of thing. Or, uh, you know, if you get uh, poked in the eye and, you know, one eye is kind of a little bit wonky and you lose your depth perception and you got to give it time uh, to heal. Like we miss our senses uh, when they're there. We want them restored. Uh, and so sure, it's nice. The story in the Bible, Jesus healing a blind man, it's a, it, it's a nice story, but it's not just a feel-good story. And part of the reason why we highlight it in church growing up, why it's a common one that we all know, is because it's a, it's a common one in the, in the Bible. We highlight it because all four gospel writers highlight this act. Mark has two separate healing of the blind accounts in chapters 8 and 10. Matthew has three of them in chapters 9, 15, and 20. Luke has one in chapter 18. Uh, and if you think about like kids, when your parents tell you the same thing over and over and over again, it's probably because they think it's pretty important. Uh, and so here we have all four gospel stories talking about Jesus healing the blind, repeating that it's important. Why is it important? Well, as Pastor James pointed out three weeks ago, in one of the prophecies of the Messiah that comes from the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5, it says, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. In this way, all four Gospels, not just John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, are fulfilling John's mission statement that these signs are directing us that Jesus is the Messiah. They're authenticating the message and the messenger. In fact, there's, there's a lot of parallels. You know, so Pastor James pointed out this prophecy from Isaiah a couple of weeks ago. There's a lot of parallels uh, in what we see in this healing account in John chapter 9 and the healing of the paralytic in John chapter 5. And as Pastor James was preaching a couple of weeks ago, I kept thinking like, oh, I can't use that point. He covered that one. I can't use that one. It, it left, it, like, I was wondering if he was going to leave me anything to go off of. I was half tempted just to get up here and like roll the clip and then like audio dub over whatever he says, paralyzed, like blind, blind. 
uh, over the top or just be like, okay, like my sermon is ditto what he said, just change parallel, the like catch it online if you missed it. But I'd say there is a reason why John included this sign after the healing of the paralytic story. There's some parallels, but there's some differences too. And there's a reason why John's healing the blind, uh, why this account isn't just different than healing the paralyzed man in John chapter 5, but it's also unique and different than any of the other Jesus healing the blind accounts that we get in the other three Gospels. And I think there's a reason to that. So let's dive in a little bit here. One of, the, one of the biggest differences is the way that this story starts out. In the first two verses, it says this, Jesus was walking along. He saw a man uh, who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, first, very quickly, right off the bat, we learned that this guy was blind from birth. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that Jesus knows. Verse 2, that the disciples know, kind of leads me to act like, well, how did they know? Uh, I doubt the guy was sitting there in a t-shirt that said, blind from birth, uh, just to clarify it. Or I doubt he was like advertising it vocally, like, hey, blind guy over here. And not just like, I didn't just develop it. I've been blind since birth. Take extra pity on me. Um, We could go and try, like, it kind of makes sense that Jesus would know, right? We could say, well, Jesus is God and God knows all. So Jesus, he just knows. Uh, but verse two is pretty darn clear that the disciples knew as well. And I doubt that Jesus was uh, the type of man who would be flaunting his divine knowledge and being like, you guys see this blind guy over here? Blind from birth. Like, it just doesn't seem like Jesus to me. So I, I, we don't know exactly why. We're not sure from the text, but I'm guessing that in part because he was blind from birth, uh, he became a super familiar face amongst those in need and familiar enough that people at least knew his basic story, right? That he didn't just develop blindness. He didn't show up randomly. He had been there for a while because he had been dealing with this for his whole life. But how they knew this part of the story, I don't think that's important as the fact that they knew this much of the story. And that sets up the question that we see in verse 2. Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And I get the sense that the disciples, especially knowing Peter, Peter was not a subtle disciple. They may not have been super subtle about asking the question either. If I was in the group, I probably would have been like, guys, he's blind, not deaf. Like, keep it down a little bit, right? By our cultural standards, it seems like a pretty invasive question, not super PC uh, type of question to be asking out loud while walking past the guy who was blind and maybe his hearing was a little bit better because oftentimes you hear, you know, you lose one sense, the other gains uh, a little bit more. Um, But For the disciples, if you put yourself in their sandals, the culture at the time, this idea that afflictions uh, people experienced were the result of sin was something that was pretty commonplace. Part of this perspective speaks to people trying to justify and explain the brokenness in the world around them. Another part also comes from their understanding of God, right? Sin has consequences, uh, and God is a just God. So if something like this happens, it must be some type of divine judgment. There has to be an explanation for it. Uh, We see this theology articulated in different parts of the Bible, in the book of Job in particular, right? Job loses everything. His friends come to console him, but one of the ways that they figure they can console, well, clearly this didn't happen for no reason at all. Like, it must be because you have some sort of sin that you haven't repented for in your life. That's That's the only way that God would do this to you, Job. To us, this, prob- this might seem like an inappropriate question. Like, we would never ask that question today. 
Uh, it might even seem silly, especially with, like if you think about what we know about health and the human body today. Uh, but this idea of divine judgment, I would say it's still somewhat commonplace today, right? That God is kind of like the eternal slot machine. You put in good, you pull the lever, you get good out. You put bad in, you pull the lever. It's like, it's not going to magically change. You get bad out, right? Or maybe we think of this more likely in terms of, maybe you've used the phrase karma. Or maybe not you, more likely your friends, right, have used karma. Because we would never say karma in church. Um, right? You're, you're driving down the highway, that guy who speeds past you, he just got pulled over and is getting a ticket. Ha! <laughs> Karma. He deserves it, right? The kid who bullied me in middle school, now bottom of the totem pole in high school, he's getting what he deserved. Uh, getting those bad vibes back. Or that person, you're driving through the parking lot looking for that perfect parking spot, uh, and you got your blinker on as somebody pulls out, and as they pull out, somebody else swoops in, and you're like, gosh darn it, and you come back out of the store, and they seem to be in a rush and trying to get out, but somebody is now trying to, like, turn, and they can't, and so they're stuck in their perfect parking spot. Like, <laughs> take that, right? Or, or maybe, like, you're in the store, and you see them, and they're in the 12 items or less, but clearly they have, like, 30 items, and it's like, what are you doing? And now the scanners broke and they're calling for assistance but it's not working and you're thinking just they're actually that one's probably just as equally fresh because now they're holding up the line right they're frustrated now you're frustrated too but right we have this this sense of of judgment right people getting what they deserve and we probably struggle with that more than we realize or care to admit uh, with that same idea of how god works as the disciples do that led them to ask that question so back to the disciples' question. Whose fault was this infirmity? Was it the guys? Can, can, he, can, he, can you sin before you were born? Is that even possible? Can you, and, and to sin before you were born so bad that you're born blind? Like, does that make, that doesn't seem right or just. So then, but there's got to be an explanation. So it must be his, his parents, right? The sins of the father impacting the son, right? Or, or maybe mom sinned and she sinned so bad that then like the baby absorbed the sin while in mom, like, but that's, like, that doesn't, doesn't seem just either. Like, why, if mom sinned, why is the, the kid punished? It's not, this isn't a trap question. It's a legitimate question. The disciples, they're trying to wrap their heads around this classic question of why. And I think it's something that we've all wrestled with at various times, especially like when we're three years old, right? Always badgering our parents, why, why, why? But even as adults, we try and wrap our heads around why some of these things happen. The disciples, they were so hung up on this question, they just, they could not see beyond it. But here's where we see something that we can learn about Jesus in this moment. Jesus is the one who breaks through beyond what we can see. Not just physically, but mentally and spiritually. The disciples, they, they, they can't wrap their heads around this perceived sin issue of who's to blame, so they ask the question, thinking, well, Maybe Jesus will know the answer. But Jesus' view, it, it's so much bigger than their narrow focus. The disciples are stuck in this moment. They can't get out of it. Jesus sees the whole picture, knowing that the answer to the disciples' question isn't even one they considered and gave him as a multiple-choice option. When we're stuck in the why, in the moment, in seeing only what we can see in the midst of, this, of a situation that we're experiencing, Jesus sees clearly. He sees the bigger picture. He sees the 30,000-foot view and can take it all in. There will be times in our life where we can't make sense of what's going on. We can try to explain it or justify it away like the disciples do. Sometimes we encounter situations in life where even that doesn't work for us. But just like in this blind man's situation where Jesus sees the whole picture, Jesus does in our lives as well.
When it comes to trying to make sense of a situation or being unable to comprehend the circumstances around us, we shouldn't lean on our own understanding, but lean into Jesus, trusting that he sees what we cannot see. And so in verse 3, we get Jesus' answer. Jesus says it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. Jesus answered, it's not a sin issue. It's a moment of opportunity. An opportunity for the power of God to be displayed, a sign to point to who Jesus is. This wasn't even an option that the disciples had considered. But Jesus, again, he sees what we can't see and works beyond our understanding. So the disciples' question and possible answers point to their limited understanding of the situation and thinking about this only as a sin issue. But I also think that their question points to another perception that they have about the situation, and that is the sense of hopelessness about it. While their question was to try to get to the bottom of who was the guilty party, there was no hint of them considering anything that might be a causation that wasn't because of sin. Because there's, there's no solution in the ancient world to deal with these type of physical infirmities. Apparently, they had forgotten some of the things that they had seen Jesus do. If they had the Gospel of John, they could have flipped back a few pages and reminded themselves, right? Um, you know, just including the paralyzed guy just a few chapters ago. But if we, if we put ourselves in the sandals of that first century person living at the time, hygiene and medical knowledge was not what it is now. If something like your vision started to go, there wasn't a whole lot of hope of getting it back. It limited your ability to work uh, and therefore your social standing. And before you know it, you face becoming an outcast at a time when you needed the assistance of people the most. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I wear glasses. Ta-da, right? Uh, and in my regular eye checkups growing up, one thing started to develop, to develop and stand out when I was about the same age as our confirmation students going into high school uh, was that I had a slightly above average eye pressure. Now, some of you might eye pressure, like your eyes have pressure? Yes. So uh, quick bio lesson here uh, in kind of layman's terms, right? If you think of your eye, uh, it's kind of like a water balloon, right? It's filled up with a clear liquid that keeps it inflated and uh, it gives you the ball of eyeball, right? Uh, it keeps it inflated. Now what happens if you put too much water into a water balloon? right? Now, sounds a little extreme for your eyes. It, it is a little bit extreme for your eyes. Like, to get to that type of pressure uh, would, be, um, uh, would be, like, well beyond the norm. But what happens, if you have a slightly above average or higher eye pressure, uh, before you get to that point, uh, you'll hopefully begin to notice at some point along the way, your vision will start to go, usually on the outsides first. The pressure starts to damage the optic nerve, and you start to lose vision. And oftentimes, people, by the time they realize this, they're like, oh, like, I used to be able to see out here, and now I can only see here. And they go in, uh, and they get a workup, and the doctor says, you have glaucoma. Now, fortunately for me, my doctor is helping me manage it. Uh, and so one of the things we discovered, we put me on eye drops to help bring the pressure down. Uh, and so I go in uh, probably way more than the average person, three or four times a year, just to check on the pressure and make sure everything's okay. Daily eye drops, kind of a bummer, a little bit of a nuisance, uh, but at least I can still see, right? Not only was it diagnosed, but there was a treatment plan. Uh, if I was living in first century Jerusalem, at this point, thinking back to like I was 14 when we first noticed that, I might already be out with that guy on the street corner right next to that other blind guy. 
If I didn't, even if I didn't have my doctor, if you think about to the resources that we have today, uh, make it easier to manage without eyesight. We have Braille was invented in 1824, so the blind could read by touch. We have crosswalks with noise cues and like, you know, those like textured bumpy parts of the, of the crosswalk right before you enter into traffic. That's so like, if you're vision impaired, you notice the difference and you don't walk out in front of a car because that would be bad news, right? We have leader dogs for the blind, putting man's best friend uh, to work for an assist. We have laws in place that make public places accessible. Now, I'm not saying by any means that losing your sight today is no big deal, that if you were to experience that, that it wouldn't come with moments of feeling hopeless and grieving the loss of your sight. But none of these resources were available in the ancient world. If you develop a condition like blindness, or paralysis, or deafness, or any number of these other infirmities in the ancient world, your outlook would be significantly different than it is today. Without the care of my eye doctor, if I lived back then, I'd be slowly going blind. And as my vision began to fade, so would my hope for being normal, for being self-sufficient, for being a welcome part of society, for not being questioned whether it was my sin or my parents' sin that brought this upon me. I would be without hope. Speaking of parents, the blind man wasn't the only one who was hearing this question about who sinned. If you notice in the disciples, who's what, was it this guy or was it his parents? His parents would have been carrying that burden as well, thinking, is, is this my fault? Was there something I did that inflicted this on our son? On top of thinking about, you know, as a baby born blind, thinking about what his life would look like going forward uh, to adulthood would be incredibly painful. The hopes and dreams that parents have about what their kid's life might look like being swallowed in figurative and literal darkness. They would have felt that burden of hopelessness too for their son and questioning their guilt in his situation. But in a situation where there seemed to be no hope, Jesus steps in as the Savior who heals the most broken. There's this physical brokenness, yes, that Jesus steps in and heals. Uh, the blind guy can see now, uh, and that's great, but it's more than just physical. Jesus is also healing his soul. If we remember that, that perspective, uh, that culture would say he's blind because of sin, that Jesus healing his blindness would then have the implication that Jesus also forgave this guy's sins which, of course, we know that Jesus can do. There's a little bit of debate uh, at the time, as you'll see. Um, either that, or so Jesus healing this guy either meant uh, that Jesus has the power to forgive sins, or it points to it not really being a sin issue at all. And I think here it's a bit of both, right? The sign points to who Jesus is and his power to forgive sins. And, as Jesus said in verse 3, this wasn't, he wasn't blind because of a sin issue. But in Jesus' healing of this guy, he restores hope in a hopeless situation. Now, if you haven't already, spoiler alert, in life you'll probably experience times where we find ourselves in a similar situation of feeling hopeless. Maybe it's through something we did or something we said that impacted a relationship around us that we regret and we have no hope of getting back. Maybe it's through the actions of others that puts us in such a low spot that we can't see daylight through the darkness we're experiencing emotionally around us. Maybe it's a health issue that we can't see past and we don't understand how it happened. Whatever it might be, there will be times when we experience these moments of hopelessness. And it's in those moments where we need to turn to Jesus, where we can let him show up and provide the hope that we need. 
It might not always be what we expect. Remember the disciples' questions. The disciples asked, and they gave Jesus an A option and a B option, and Jesus said, I'm going to give you a C option. Pun intended, right? The C option. Uh, it might not be what we always expect, but it's always what we need. Now, as we look back at the story here, we see another way that this sign is unique. Jesus gives him more than a sight. He gave him a testimony. Of all the accounts of, in the Gospels of Jesus healing the blind, this is uh, where John's account also stands unique. We get a longer story of what happens immediately after the healing. Now, part of his testimony was one that really didn't need any words to share, right? We see that in verses 8 and 9. It says, His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, others said, no, it just, that just looks like him. And I can imagine being in this guy's shoes and thinking, okay, I can see now, now things can be quote-unquote normal, no more having to listen to people shuffle uh, away to pretend to be out of earshot, no more like hearing them, like I wonder if it was his parents' sin or his sin, and having to hear that. No more like getting dirty looks. Wait, do, do I know what a dirty look looks? I think we know what a dirty look, like, look looks like when we see it, Right? But immediately following this, like, so much for avoiding the whispers. He's getting the murmurs. Isn't, isn't this that, that guy? I'm pretty sure I saw him the other day, uh, but he couldn't see us. Like, what's going on over here? He seems fine now. People took notice. Something was, it was the same, but it was also drastically different. And it was so outside the realm of the expected, he had to confirm it for them. Say, yeah, guys, it's, it's me. I, I was that blind guy. I'm not wearing the shirt blind from birth anymore because I'm not blind anymore right? When something this big, this out of the ordinary happens, people tend to take notice. They wanted an explanation, but like the disciples in their original question, the people could only wrap their heads around so much. In verse 10, they ask, you know, who did it? How did it happen? And so the guy tells them, no commentary, pretty darn straightforward. It's like, you know, this is what happened. Uh, you know, Jesus came along, you know, A, then B, then C. In verse 12, they ask, you know, well, well, where is Jesus? Where did he go? And Well, I, I don't know where Jesus went, the guy says. So this, they're thinking, okay, this doesn't make any sense. Like, we've got to talk to the, the source, but we can't find the source. We should bring him in. So in verse 13 and 14, they take him to the Pharisees, not just because of the healing, not just because they can't wrap their heads around it, but also because it was the Sabbath. So now we have interrogation round two with the Pharisees. And this is no just giving testimony to the neighbors. This is, these weren't just religious leaders. They were community leaders as well. And so they asked the same thing. What happened? And the guy lays it out. A, then B, then C. This is what happened. And the Pharisees, they're so limited in their understanding as well. They quickly dissolve to infighting and arguing, trying to figure this out. In verse 17, they ask, they come back together. They're like, okay, well, what, what do you think about this Jesus fellow? And the guy says, well, he must be a prophet. And that, of course, leads them into more dissent and more quarreling, blah, 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 as they're trying to figure it out. And so they've asked this guy his story, and he's told it, but they don't believe it. So what do they do? They bring in his parents. Uh, and so they're questioning his parents. Okay, was, was, he, was he really blind? Was he really blind from birth? He's not just trying to pull one over on us, is he? Uh, okay, so then if he was blind from birth, how does this happen? We're trying to wrap our heads around it. If you think about, like, after this roller coaster of emotions, that knowing that their son was literally seeing them for the first time, and this burden lifted off their shoulders of, of that question of who sinned, uh, they were immediately thrown into the heat of this debate. 
And they answer in verse 20, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Asked him, he is old enough to speak for himself. Uh, and in his parents, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is nice. They're throwing it back to their son. He's old enough. Like, you're an adult now. You can handle these questions yourself, right? Uh, but we see in verse 20, this is, this is more than just them leaning into their son being an adult. Uh, we see that the pressure of the question of the Pharisees uh, is made known in verse 21 because it says that his parents were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. What a tough spot to be in, to celebrate their son's healing and support his testimony. Uh, supporting Jesus would mean that they could be kicked out of their religious community, their closest community. So they throw it back to their son, not quite as bad as disowning him, but certainly not supporting him the way that I'm sure they would want to if they had a chance to go back and do it again. That's how strong this pressure and influence of the Pharisees was, that his parents caved. But we see him again, now come before the Pharisees for a second time, and he's asked to tell his story again. Here he is, standing before some of the highest educated, most powerful people in his culture, in his community, opportunities that they had to reach that point in their lives that he would not have been able to pursue because of his blindness. And he gets more courageous and more bold in his proclamation of what happens and who Jesus is, holding fast to his testimony and what he experienced despite this pressure that he's feeling. This was something even his parents didn't have the courage to do. But he knows his story. And he knows what happened. And in the face of this adversity, he stands strong, sticking to what he experienced, sticking to the truth. His encounter with Jesus empowered and emboldened him to stand against this pressure of the Pharisees. That's the third thing that I think we can learn here about Jesus in this passage, is that Jesus is the one who gives us courage. This man had a remarkable experience with God. And because he experienced Jesus working from a vision bigger than ours. Because he experienced having hope restored from a hopeless situation, he then stepped forward with courage and confidence. Without even needing to speak, his experience drew attention. In speaking truth about it, he brought negative attention to himself, uh, but he kept going. His experience was so powerful that it gave him the courage to stand faithful in the face of this, face of this adversity. With the paralytic from John chapter 5, he kind of seems to play the role of like informant, right? The Pharisees ask, who done it? And he's like, this is Jesus guy over here. Like, I don't know what his deal is. But this man, once blind, serves as a primary witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. It's not just the, it's not just the sign that is a witness authenticating the messenger and message from God. It's now this guy. Jesus can give us that same courage. When we experience Jesus working in our lives beyond our expectations, when we experience the hope that Jesus can give in a situation that seems hopeless, we should have the courage to share those experiences. I think sometimes we're maybe too quick to give in to the pressures around us and not share those experiences. We maybe downplay our own spiritual experiences. They're not big enough or miraculous enough uh, to feel like they're worth sharing. So we maybe hold on to it, we tuck it away in our back pocket, and say, oh, I'll come back to it and share it later. Uh, but the longer we hold on to it and not share it, the less excited we become about it, and the less likely we are to share about it. But one of the ways that we grow in our relationship with God is talking with others about God. 
And it doesn't matter how big or small. It doesn't matter the circumstance. All it takes is a mustard seed of courage to share with one person what we've experienced with God. The more we do it, the easier it gets. Not just in sharing experiences, but also in who we share those experiences with. Jesus may give us a big dose of courage after a big experience, but we also can work to cultivate that small seed of courage that he gives us into the type of courage that we see this guy have here in this passage today. In our lives, I, there's one thing I've learned in life is that we will face adversity. But I think when we remember these things about Jesus, when we remember that Jesus can work outside of our understanding, beyond what we can see, that he can come in and bring and give hope in a hopeless situation, and that we can lean on the courage that Jesus can provide, we can be better faithful followers of him.